When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett is live with us in Tel Aviv. And that is where moments ago we just heard from one of the two hostages just released yesterday by Hamas. You see her there, the 85-year-old grandmother recounting her harrowing experience. Her daughter was by her side translating. Mohamed Lifshitz said a swarm of Hamas militants stormed her kibbutz during the massacre and abducted her on the back of a motorbike in Gaza. She said she was held underground with five other hostages and each captive had their own doctor. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. When she first arrived, they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them. Um, and that uh, they shared, they ate the same food that their, uh, um, the, um, the Hamas was eating. Hamas has now released four hostages as Israeli troops gear up to launch an assault on Gaza, they say, by ground, sea and air. The Israeli military says it struck more than 400 targets across Gaza in the past day, killing Hamas commanders and fighters. More than 200 hostages are still believed to be inside Gaza. And as we learned from Israel's president overnight, that includes 30 children. Let's go to Aaron Burnett. She joins us live in Tel Aviv. Aaron, to you, incredible to hear those details of how they were taken and then what happened when they were there. Well, and of course, the, the stark contrast between what uh, Hamas militants uh, did in that terror attack on October 7th, uh, the horrific acts that we that we now know happened of, of beheading and execution and rape and dismemberment, but that these hostages, at least from what we were now hearing today and, and seem to be consistent with what we generally understand was the case from the two hostages Friday, they are recounting a very different experience, right? Clearly, this is something Hamas wants out there as, as the, the, the PR for Hamas, that look at how we treat our hostages. It is consistent, uh, Poppy and Phil, with what the IDF had said, which was that hostages were being held in tunnels. They said tunnels that Hamas was not known to have used before. So it is consistent with that. But some of these details that you're sharing, uh, even in the context of a terrorist organization that's trying to pr- portray a very different picture to the world, saying that they were eating the same food and that they had doctors and, and medical care is still quite striking. Yeah, Aaron, and to that point, there's been so much discussion about the preparation for the attack itself, from the terror attack itself. But let's listen to what she said about how prepared they were for the hostages. The lack of awareness by Sheen Bet and IDF hurt just a lot. They warned us three weeks beforehand. They burned fields. They sent fire balloons. And the IDF did not treat it seriously. It was a description I think you heard there about the IDF and the lead up to the attack itself. Aaron, what's your sense of that, given how you've been covering this on the ground? 
Well, look, I've had a chance to read through the documents that were found on Hamas fighters, you know, specific to the uh, kibbutzim that they were going to be attacking, that they were assigned to. Those were dated, one of the ones that I saw, dated October 2022. That's just the battle plan itself. And they did have extremely detailed layouts in there of what to do with hostages, uh, Phil and Poppy. I mean, they would say, well, you take the hostages, you take them to the communal eating area. Here's where it is. So hostages were very much a central part of the plan. In fact, when you read through it, every single thing that they did was a central part of the plan. What we didn't see in the documents uh, for uh, two of the kibbutz that I've read through was the rape and dismemberment and these absolutely horrific inhuman acts that were perpetuated so broadly and horrifically. But this part, the part about hostages, uh, that was very clearly in there. And it, it sounds like now she had, sounds like from what she's saying, right, very clearly had conversations with the, cap, the, the people who were holding them captive, right? Talking about their plans, that indicates, right? Hey, you had three weeks warning. That would indicate a level of, of conversation that was happening between the hostages and, the, and Hamas. There's also one moment this morning, uh, Aaron, where she recounted another hostage who was very ill and talked about putting them on antibiotics and then it wasn't working and then switching antibiotics. And it just, I think, speaks to your point about how prepared it seems like they were for what was coming. I think we have part of this. Let's listen to it. We had a close doctor who came to see us every two to three days. The paramedic took it upon himself and took care of medicines. If there were not medicines, they would bring substitute medicine, equivalent medicines. What's your reaction on the hey, ground Poppy, here? You know, yeah. All right. So here's what's interesting about that. And I'm sure you're having the same reaction. Of course, you want the hostages to be returned and returned safe and sound. And, and they should never have been taken in the first place. But what that actually highlights is that Hamas is doing exactly what Israel has accused them of doing, right, which is hoarding medical supplies. Right now, you have hospitals in Gaza where people, children are being operated on without morphine. They don't have antibiotics. They don't have power. But Hamas clearly has all those things and had them stockpiled. Right. They're not using them on their own civilians. They're not using them there, right? They're, they're providing them to hostages. Again, you want the hostages to be well taken care of, but they shouldn't be hostages. But it does show that Hamas was prepared, had all this stuff stockpiled, had medical professionals were, who were able to help. I mean, all of these things tell a very important tale. Of course, for the hostage families themselves, I, I, I hope it seems this would give them a real hope that that, that hostages are as the Israel has said, majority of them being alive would not just mean 50% plus one. It would mean maybe all of them. It's got to give hope to those families uh, at the very least, of course. But it, it does also show Hamas has the antibiotics. Hamas has the doctors. But, of course, uh, the Gaza civilian hospitals right now do not. Aaron, is there, you know, the discussion that and, we uh, heard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, one more quick thing, and that was that there were clearly discussions with other yeah. captives, with other people who had been taken hostage. Does that give any sense about, kind of to your point, the broader landscape of the 200-plus individuals uh, that currently are believed to be hold, held hostage? Right. I mean, we do know, of course, the government of Qatar has been very involved. The government of Egypt, obviously, was specifically along with the Red Cross involved with the two elderly women who were released last night, uh, one of whom we saw speak this morning. There has been a broad perception that foreign nationals or dual uh, passport holders may be treated differently, although the two women who were released were, were Israeli. So it is it is unclear. But 
there, there's also been discussion that maybe there would be a big group of hostages released and that there's been some holdups on any negotiations on that. But, but that's the real question as to whether that happens. And then, of course, whether that then gives a green light to Prime Minister Netanyahu to do whatever it is that he's planning to do, which he has a lot of options at his hands even now, right, when you talk about going into Gaza. It's not just one monolithic choice. Even within that, there are a lot of different options that continuing hostages uh, being held in Gaza could impact. And the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, uh, said that Israel is preparing for a multilateral operation on Hamas. So they're still talking, Phil and Poppy, about air, ground, and sea. Here's how we put it last night here. Keep preparing for our operation. It will come soon. We are preparing thoroughly for the next step, a multilateral operation in the air, ground and sea. Do your work. Get ready. We will need you. Meanwhile, three-star American general is here in Israel this morning, counseling Israeli forces ahead of the expected Gaza ground invasion. Our Oren Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us this morning. So, Oren, um, obviously, General Glenn, important here. And what is the significance of of his expertise and experience and being with the IDF at this point in the war? So Lieutenant General James Glenn from the U.S. Marine Corps obviously has decades of experience in the military. On top of that, in one of his previous positions, he was the commander of Marine Forces Special Operations Command, so he has experience in special ops as well. A U.S. official who confirmed that uh, Glenn was in Israel said he would help with big-picture advice. Israel hasn't conducted operations on this sort of size and scale in decades, if not longer, whereas the U.S. has. Moreover, Glenn's experience in Iraq in perhaps urban warfare would also help Israel as they get ready to potentially move into Gaza and and conduct warfare in a dense urban environment, an incredibly difficult uh, environment to operate in. So Glenn can offer all that perspective. The White House yesterday said that there were uh, military officials and officers with relevant experience that would be there to help Israel, not only on its operations now, but also on what Israel is planning to do. This, as the U.S. urges caution, urges planning, and urges Israel to set out very specific goals on what it wants to accomplish in Gaza. Aaron. All right. And obviously they've been, I know, skeptical of what those goals or how explicitly those goals have been laid out. We also heard from Iran, which is the broader fear if you're going to have a massive escalation for the world. And the foreign minister said in a press conference in Tehran last night that the United States has sent Iran two messages. What are those, Oren? The U.S. very concerned about escalation in the region, and and you've seen Secretary of State Antony Blinken put in a tremendous amount of work on shuttle diplomacy to try to head off a wider conflict and keep this fight contained to Gaza. The Iranian foreign minister said at a press conference yesterday that they've received two messages, as you've said, from the Americans. One, explicitly saying effectively, we don't want to see a larger war. And the second, also sort of urging or warning Iran to stay out of this and to keep its proxies out of this. And that would be a number of those proxies, whether it's uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria, or the Houthis in Yemen. So you can see the U.S. even trying to work through back channels and, and other intermediaries such as Qatar to try to make sure that others stay out of this fight as this looks to, as the risk of escalation seems very apparent here, Aaron. All right, Oren, thank you very much. At the Pentagon, breaking all of those details today. And the White House still says not enough aid is reaching Gaza. That's the reality of the situation. Only a few trucks going in versus hundreds needed. One essential resource, though, is a non-starter for Israel, at least up to this point it has been. The senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last night telling Caitlin Collins that Israel will not allow fuel into Gaza, even if all the hostages are released. Here's what Mark Regev had to say. 
No, at the moment, we have no interest in more fuel going to the Hamas military machine, and we have not authorized fuel. We've authorized medicine, we've author authorized water, we've authorized foodstuffs. We've not authorized anything else. Well, it comes as Gaza residents have been pushing to the south. Many, of course, still choosing to remain in the north. They, they see it as their home. But many have, hundreds of thousands, have moved south, trying to get closer to that Rafah crossing. Just think about all that pressure going to that one point. They all want to try to get out, improving their chances of making it to Egypt on the other side of that border crossing. Our journalist, Ibrahim Dahman, that's here at CNN, has been documenting the struggles he and his family are facing for us uh, every single night. And here's what happened to him yesterday. And we are thinking of Ibrahim and his family. Uh, he is documenting with all the power issues and everything every single day for us what he can. And we are getting some new details coming in early, early this morning at New York time from a hostage just released by Hamas. And we'll tell you what it says about Hamas's strategy as we, we've been discussing. There is a lot that it tells us uh, implicitly between the lines as well as explicitly. And we're learning new information about alleged mastermind of the October 7th attacks, how we managed to coordinate such a massive attack without some of the most sophisticated intelligence services in the world knowing about it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
we all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is the problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. Very well prepared. They prepared it for a long period of time. All of the needs for female, for the women needs, shampoo, conditioner. Just remarkable to hear that was moments ago. Yehevid Lifshitz, who was just freed from Hamas captivity, describing her experience after she was kidnapped on a motorbike two weeks ago. Joining us now with a lot of insight on Hamas, its leadership, the Economist Middle East correspondent Nicholas Pelham. He is also the author of a new piece in the Economist 1843 magazine about Mohammed Deef. He is the man who transformed Hamas from a cluster of terrorist cells into a force capable of invading Israel. And Nicholas, I'm sure you heard her press conference just less than an hour ago. Speak to what she described in terms of specifically how well prepared Hamas was with all of those medical supplies, all of that planning to take these hostages. It's, uh, I'm, it, it's, it's astonishing that if you compare kind of where um, the military wing of Hamas began in the uh, early uh, 1990s, sort of 30 years ago, to where it is today, it's just transformed from being, uh, you know, an amateur bunch of kind of part-time um, guerrillas uh, um, into a, a, an effective fighting force equipped with ability to to um, operate uh, uh, in in the air at sea, um, on land, and critically in a fourth dimension uh, in the tunnels. And I think it's there, which, you know, that has been its strength. It's that, that was the one area where um, Israel didn't have visibility and uh, of, of, of what was happening underground and the extent of the preparation and sort of the arsenal that uh, Hamas had managed to collect and uh, the degree to which it was dug in and could operate across borders. Nicholas, in your piece, uh, which is excellent, as, as Poppy is noting, you write, you're, it's about Mohammed Diaf, who's the leader of uh, Hamas, and it's his ability to almost be a phantom of sorts. Uh, as there's been so many atta- or attempts to assassinate him, uh, he's been uh, injured multiple times. He's lost most of his family members, if not all. But in the piece, you said Diaf's decision to commit mass murder has invited a furious military response, which may well result in his own death. But it did create turmoil across the whole region and put Palestine at the top of the global agenda, which was one of Hamas's main goals. It- this shock in the wake of this attack because there was not a sense that they could do this. And yet your story traces the origin, not just one man, but of the military wing in its entirety. Were you surprised by the scale of what happened on October 7th? 
I mean, again, if you if you look back at the course of the last sort of twenty years, uh, Hamas has toyed with political options. It's discussed um, ceasefires, extended ceasefires, um, even some form of armistice, some form of recognition. It's talked about ways in which it could even uh, at some point disarm. And I think you can look back at that period now as a kind of as a history of of, of missed opportunities, where you know, the politics was sidelined in favour of military um, of military power. And I guess if you look at the career of Mohammed Dave, the one thing that is a um, except for his survival, which again is pretty unusual in the military wing, but the one thing which is a constant is his belief that there wasn't going to be a a, a political um, solution to uh, essentially a, a, a political conflict without some cataclysmic event, um, and I think that's what he set out to 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 deliver in the most horrific of ways. Nicholas, could you also speak more broadly to the role of Qatar in all of this? Obviously, they were crucial in negotiating this release and the release of the hostages on Friday, but the Atlantic piece over the weekend, the reckoning is coming argues, and I'll just quote it, for too long, Doha has danced between its Islamist allies and its Western and Arab partners. The music just stopped. Talking about the huge influence that Qatar has over Hamas, but also the huge connection it has to the West, to the United States, specifically in negotiating hostage releases like this. Uh, I mean, it, it is absolutely correct that uh, Qatar, of all the states in the Gulf, has been um, uh, dancing and and. Islamist tune. It was kind of uh, backing Islamist movements um, at the time of the Arab Spring uh, 12 years ago. It's been, uh, it's seen them as perhaps one way in which you can project its influence across the region. But at the same time, it's been dancing that Islamist dance in many ways at the behest of, of the West, um, whether it's in negotiating with uh, in the Taliban in Afghanistan or uh, uh, dealing with, with, with Hamas. It was very much coordinating with Israel. Um, it was uh, Israel and Qatar together that thought that they could um, manage uh, Hamas through uh, through payments, through uh, financial handouts, um, and they were pretty much in lockstep. There was very little that Qatar did, uh, which wasn't with uh, Israel's coordination, partly because it wanted to divide uh, the Palestinian polity um, into a West Bank part in the West Bank, a part in Gaza, partly because um, it, it did see that, that it did believe that it could manage Hamas and. Uh, restrain it, restrict it to to Gaza. And I think if you look at the career of Mohammed Dave, you know he comes from a family which um, is from the uh, highlands around around Jerusalem. Uh, he was very much focused on Jerusalem, on the West Bank. Um, and for him, this wasn't uh, a conflict just for sort of ending a blockade in Gaza. It was a, a, about trying to resolve an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and uh, absolutely in Palestinians' favour, and he believed that the only message that was uh, going to be understood by the parties was was one of force. Yeah, that message has now very clearly been sent. The piece is Hamas's deadly phantom, the man behind the attacks in the Economist 1843 magazine. It's excellent, highly recommended. Nicholas Palm, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. We'll continue to follow all those new developments in the Middle East. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., it has been three full weeks without a House speaker, and eight Republican candidates are now vying for the job. We're going to break down who's who, where they stand on the big issues, and even where they stand on Donald Trump. Stay with us. Today marks 21 days without a Speaker of the House. Just for context, that's not great. Republicans at this point appear no closer to appointing one today than they were three weeks ago. They are moving forward in a process. 
It's now an eight-way race to be speaker. These are the eight individuals, the eight men who are currently running for speaker. It's down from nine candidates after Pennsylvania Congressman Dan Muser dropped out during a conference meeting last night. Now, Republican leaders say they would like to elect a new speaker by this evening when they meet again behind closed doors throughout the course of the day. So you might be wondering, who are these guys and where do they stand on the key issues? That's important to note. Issues, not exactly the driving force behind who will be the next speaker in this Republican conference, but where they stand is critical. Let's start with aid for Ukraine. That has obviously been an issue that has divided the conference over the course of the last several months. And it comes as the administration has put together a very significant emergency aid package, including $60 billion for Ukraine. When it comes to the last vote on Ukraine aid back in September, four of the individuals who are running voted yes, four voted no. Tom Emmer, who is a member of leadership, the current House Majority Whip, uh, he was a yes. Leadership often votes with where the top of the conference is. Austin Scott, Jack Bergman, Pete Sessions also yes votes. Mike Johnson, Byron Donalds, Kevin Hearn, Gary Palmer, they were all no votes, representing, I think, the split that is very clear within the conference. What about the 2020 election? That has been a guiding force for the individual who's the current frontrunner in the Republican Party, who was the president back then. Well, that's a little bit more aligned. Now, voted to certify the 2020 election back on January 6th, two Republicans Tom Emmer and Austin Scott did vote to certify. Six chose not to at the behest of Trump and many of his allies. But before you say Tom Emmer and Austin Scott very much aligned with actual democracy, not necessarily as much. When you look at who signed on to the Texas brief asking the Supreme Court to consider overturning the election, that initial lawsuit, well, all of them who were in Congress at the time, including Emmer, including Austin Scott, they signed on. So while they voted to certify, Scott and Emmer did sign on to that lawsuit to essentially invalidate uh, the 2020 election. What about actual votes recently? The Fiscal Responsibility Act, the debt ceiling bill uh, that really launched this entire breakdown implosion of the Republican conference. Four of those who are running voted yes on that bill. Four voted no, kind of highlighting the conservative split to some sort about keeping the government open. That's something that they should probably be fairly cognizant of right now. November 17th is the current deadline. Four voted yes, three voted no. One, Byron Donalds, did not vote. The expectation was that he would have voted no. The one primary split you see where one member really splits off from the rest is on gay marriage, where Tom Emmer did vote on the Protect Same-Sex Marriage Act in 2022. Emmer is a yes, everybody else is a no. This isn't one of the top issues within the conference right now. But what this underscores, this entire kind of range of issues, is that this isn't necessarily an issue-based election. This has been more of a personality run up to this point. And the big question for Emmer, who is a member of leadership, who does have some high-profile support already, including former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, is where does Trump stand? His endorsements haven't won out up to this point. He's 0 for 2 right now in these races. However, Emmer and he have a history, and it's not exactly a great one, They've had some phone calls, whether or not that will help him get over the line over the course of the day or days or weeks at this point. We'll have to wait and see. Poppy? Please, please don't say weeks. So. <laughs> Listen to what Donald Trump said when asked if he'd support Emmer's bid. Would you endorse uh, Tom Emmer for speaker? He hasn't historically been your biggest fan, but he is the most likely candidate right now. Well, I think he's my biggest fan now because he called me yesterday <laughs> and he told me I'm your biggest fan. So I don't know about that. Uh, well, we're looking at a lot of people and, you know, I'm sort of trying to stay out of that as much as possible. I said there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. <laughs> if Jesus came down and said, I want to be speaker, he would do it. That's a high bar. With us now, CNN's chief national. I think he's running. He wasn't there last anchor. night at the conference meeting. Maybe today. Maybe today. Maybe hunt. <laughs> Morning. Okay. Hi guys. Okay. So Tom Emmer, um, Trump likes him. 
I thought it was interesting. I had asked one. But he's no Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Sorry. Like I said, high bar. But I had said yesterday, I had asked about the fact that he and Austin Scott did vote to certify the election. And does that hurt them in the conference? But then there's also the fact that he questioned a lot about the election. And that, for example, that amicus brief in Texas uh, back in 2020, a number of the efforts to try to overturn it. Listen to this from then. This president is making sure that uh, he stays focused and his team stays focused on these these questionable uh, uh, election practices that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to find out uh, if if so and if it's accurate how much uh, they skewed the outcome of the election in Georgia and elsewhere. So he did vote to certify, but that brief in Texas was to basically throw out the results of the election in a number of swing states. So I, I suppose he didn't upset the president too much. <laughs> well, president. Poppy, look, I think I think that that was in the context of, you know, when the Trump campaign was going through the legal challenges. And I think for a lot of Republicans in that period, they were willing to say, OK, sure, anyone has the right to go to court to talk about this stuff. Of course, later we learned over time that the courts rejected all of these uh, appeals, right? Um, and then you get uh, to uh, January of 2021 when we face these certification questions um, and, of course, what happened on January 6th. And, you know, while Trump was up in New Hampshire uh, saying those things that you showed about Emmer, saying, I'm not trying to get involved, like only Jesus Christ could win, he was actually reposting later that day attacks against Emmer on his social media. So it's clear that there's an issue here. I, you know, I think the challenge, you know, and Phil, you pointed this out, we don't fully understand how much influence Trump has here. He obviously wanted Jim Jordan to be speaker. He didn't have enough juice to get Jordan into the, to, to get him the gavel. I think it's more likely he does have enough juice in the conference to sink somebody that he doesn't want. And if he really applies himself to sinking Emmer's bid, that could happen. But I do think that exhaustion factor is really setting in. And I think you saw last night, member after member, telling our team, look, we got to get this done. We are, we are over this. I think they are starting to see in their polling just how bad it looks for the American people. And they uh, are realizing that they're going to start to get punished for it if they don't actually move. Now, whether it's enough, you know, we'll see. Yeah, the pain threshold's been much higher than I suspected, given the fact we're 21 days. But that's a great point. When are they going to break? It feels like it's about there. We'll have to wait and see. Casey Hunt, thank you, as always. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. Also, this update, a Russian court is extending pre-trial detention for a U.S. journalist by another six weeks. Also, Kermasheva works in Prague for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. She was arrested and charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. That carries up to five years in prison. She went to Russia in May for a family emergency, but had both her U.S. and Russian passports confiscated in June while she was waiting for a flight home to the Czech Republic. She is now being ordered to remain in detention until the 5th of December. She is the second American journalist detained by Russia this year, along with Evan Gershkovich. We'll keep you posted as we learn more. Well, an off-duty pilot charged with 83 counts of attempted murder after trying to cut the power on an Alaska Airlines flight. We're going to tell you what happened. And CNN is on the ground in the West Bank, where the war is driving a wedge between generations of trust between Jews and Palestinians. Something is being cracked, that something is not the same anymore.
Welcome back. I'm Erin Burnett, live in Tel Aviv. In the last hour, we heard from one of the two Israeli hostages who were just released by Hamas with her daughter by her side. Yoki Livsich told the world about what she experienced after being kidnapped by Hamas fighters on that horrific day, October 7th, that Saturday morning. Yochi, along with Nurit Cooper, were released last night after being held captive in Gaza for more than two weeks. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. When she first arrived, they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them. Um, and that uh, they shared, they ate the same food that their, uh, um, the, um, the Hamas was eating. This morning, Israel Defense Forces gave an update on the war effort. So the IDF's latest update, 400 terror targets, they say they uh, struck yesterday, including Hamas commanders and numerous operatives. That's in the past 24 hours. We keep emphasizing this. Over 400 in the past 24 hours, more than 250 in the 24 hours before that. That is the number of strikes going on uh, in Gaza. They are, by and large, incredibly precision targeted at Hamas targets. And the French President Emmanuel Macron is actually here in Israel today. There's been a parade of world leaders coming through. The Dutch Prime Minister yesterday, the French Prime Minister today. Macron telling the Israeli President Isaac Herzog that France shares Israel's pain and understands what it's like to experience a terrorist attack. Of course, uh, referring to the Pataklan, the French President is also expected to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And that should happen uh, later on today. Of course, it is uh, about 1.30 local time here in Tel Aviv. I spoke to a woman who was taken hostage, and she was sure she wouldn't come out alive. Now, she didn't end up going to Gaza. She's here. She survived. She thought she would never see her children again. She was used as a human shield, she says, for a Hamas commander who actually surrendered. She's been reunited with her children, but of course, so many lives, she says, all the lives of the hostages around her, including her boyfriends, were lost. All were killed. Here's what happened. I don't know from where I have this uh, courage to do what I did, but uh, the, the terrorists that talk Hebrew, he see me that I'm looking at them. I, uh, you know, I'm looking at them. Like he told me, calm down, calm down. We don't want to kill you. We just want to take you to Gaza. And he tell me, he, told, uh, he asked me, you have uh, friends from the police or the army? And I said to him, yeah. So he told me, so let's uh, call one of them. After two hours, the police is arrived. We saw jeeps. Everybody get to, you know, stress, the terrorists, uh, put the guns, you know. Shots starting to to happen between the both sides, and it's one, two, three, and then it's, wow, one hundred. We all... The hostages and the terrorists we all, uh, you know, oh, lie down. Yeah. It's a bruise. You have a bruise. Yeah, it's do like me, uh, like this, not mm. like. Yeah, yeah. I feel something very hot, mm. and then I understand that I'm really, really. That's what that when it's happened to me, I understand that I'm going to die. That I'm not. It's not possible to get a, a life from this situation. And because I was calling to the police, they know that there is a woman with, with the name Yasmin. So they told him, go with Yasmin outside. 
put your clothes out. And it take four minutes. He put out of Bulletproof us. vest. Yeah, it was naked. And he's going with me slowly to the police. And he's, how does he go with you? How does he, he how do you walk? He hold me in the back like this. Okay. So this it's like a, like, so you're a yeah, shield. I'm a shield. Yeah, human shield. And he goes with me two meters from the police, but it's taking us for four minutes. They are, uh, everybody's. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling him, don't shoot, don't shoot, because what I, does the Hamas do then? Do they see him then? Do that? They see him, and they they uh, told him that they will, if we will go to do this, they will shoot them. But they didn't do it, and they didn't do it. Yeah, they. She'll never know why. Yeah, because I, no no one no. stayed alive. And then we are two meters from the uh, twenty policemen from Israel. He pushed me a little bit. I'm running to the police. He get arrested. And I'm saved. But I understand that my boyfriend and the others are still there with 40 terrorists because just one surrendered. Three days after the attack, they, they have an announcement. And that's it. And he was dead. And everybody was dead. I think it's a dream that maybe I'm going to wake up. I don't um, understand it. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I know I the I know the information, but I don't feel the information. I know it's he's dead, but I I think he's okay. You can't feel yet, do you? I don't. Is that you don't have the yeah the emotion I don't yet. The, yeah. Sometimes I have the emotion, but most of the time I live in denial. But I know I'm denial. Okay, it's not a, because it's weird for me that he's he's gone. He was younger than me. I'm 44 and he's 37. So it's weird to me that you won't get to my age today. You understand? He'll never be 44. Yeah, never. Never be 40. It's never very 40. strange. This is the trauma that she's going through. Of course, she, she did say that Hamas, as she described him, commander, uh, did turn himself over. Uh, all of the other hostages, except for her and an older woman, were killed that were in that group, every single one of them, including her boyfriend. Well, the White House says it does not believe that this is the time for a ceasefire. Although, of course, these these words uh, start to become confusing because, of course, there has been a serious delay in a full-on assault. The White House, though, is calling on Hamas to release all of the hostages held in Gaza before any talk of an actual ceasefire, as, of course, constant bombing rains down on Gaza. Meanwhile, the U.N. Security Council will meet this morning to address the situation in the Middle East. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, will be there. We'll be speaking with someone else who will be in that room. That's ahead here on CNN This Morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will participate in a U.N. Security Council ministerial on the situation in the Middle East, the war. This comes as the Biden administration is calling on Hamas to release all hostages being held in Gaza before any discussion of a ceasefire. Why did you? We should, get, we should have a ceasefire. Not a ceasefire. We should have those hostages released, and then we can talk. That needs to be the first move here. They got to release all the hostages. Uh, we're not talking about a ceasefire right now. In fact, we don't believe that this is the time for a ceasefire. Up to this point, four hostages have been released, but more than 200 people are still being held in Gaza. And that includes British nationals, according to the UK government. Joining us now is Britain's security minister, Tom Tugendhat. 
This morning, he'll be speaking at the U.N. Security Council meeting on the Middle East. Sir, we appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with the, the idea of the ceasefire, the balance between humanitarian aid for the people of Gaza, trying to separate them from Hamas, and last night, another 400 strikes as the Israelis prepare for what appears to be a ground incursion. We don't have a timeline on it yet. Um, do you believe or do you agree with the president that, that a ceasefire simply can't be on the table so long as hostages are still being held? So the British government has been absolutely clear about this. The cause of this uh, incident, the, the awful moment, is Hamas. Hamas has captured Israeli citizens, has brutalized Palestinian people, has murdered Israeli civilians only 17 days ago. And what the UK government supports is extremely clearly the right of the Israeli government to defend itself, to defend its people against, let's be clear what it was, the largest pogrom we've seen since 1945. So this is an absolutely horrific moment in Israeli history, and the Israeli government has the right to defend itself. We're also, of course, calling for the ability of aid to get into Gaza, and that's why the British government has committed some $40 million to aid for the Palestinian people, who are, of course, victims of this gruesome Hamas regime as well. You have such experience in the region. Not only did you deploy uh, to both Iraq and Afghanistan, you served as an officer, uh, as an Arabic-speaking intelligence officer in the Middle East. There is concern, CNN's reporting has it, uh, and the New York Times says it, just concern among those in the Biden administration that Israel has not yet expressed, at least publicly, a clear objective if they are able to wipe out Hamas, what the end goal is in Gaza for the long term the CNN's reporting is that the U.S. and its allies have been urging Israel to be strategic and clear about those goals. What would you say to that and what we've learned in the past in Iraq, for example, and Afghanistan about what the end game is? So I think we all know that the military operation is not the end game. The end game is a peaceful, sustainable situation. But we also know that Hamas is not a partner in that peace. We've seen the Iranian money that has funded Hamas into murdering not just uh, Israelis, but Palestinians. We've seen the, Isra the Iranian money that's gone into Hezbollah and other organizations in the regions, including the Houthis, that's murdered Saudis. And we've seen this pattern of violence that means that we know that Hamas is not a partner for peace. Now, of course, it's true that what we need to see is a peaceful resolution of this conflict so that Palestinians and Israelis can live together. But I'm not going to be giving military advice to people like General Gantz, who've done an extraordinary job in defending Israel. Beyond, beyond the now, <clears throat> the question is... You heard President Biden say on 60 Minutes that it would not be wise to have a reoccupation of Gaza by the Israeli military. So, so then what long term for Gaza and the Palestinian people there? Well, that's exactly why the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, have been going around the region. Our Foreign Secretary has been in Qatar, in Egypt, in Jordan, in Turkey and many other places talking to leaders and talking to partners in search of peace, because you're absolutely right. The reality is what we need to see is we need to see the Palestinian people able to govern themselves and the Israeli people able to live in safety and security alongside them. And that's exactly what the UK government's working towards. That's exactly why I'm here to talk to the United Nations, because we can only do that if we work with partners and allies, including, of course, important allies in the region. I think the, the geopolitical... Uh kind of power play to some degree, or power plays, plural, will be on display at the UN Security Council. That's not new, but I think it'll be pretty vivid today uh, to some degree. But also in the travels that you're talking about, US officials, UK officials around the region, there are new players, there are new leaders, and there are vacuums to some degree that have been filled over the course of the last couple of years. When it comes to spillover and concerns about escalation, uh, how significant is that to you and the UK government right now? 
Well, the UK government is always worried about uh, conflicts escalating. It's one of the reasons why our Foreign Secretary devotes so much time and effort into uh, building up diplomatic partnerships in the region. We have some extremely close partnerships in the region. Allies like Jordan and Egypt have been extremely important partners for many years, as they have been in different ways for you too. And so what we're looking to do is to make sure that we're working together with others so that we can resolve this crisis, we can get aid into the Palestinian people, we can get security to the Israeli people, and we can resolve this without it escalating. But let's be absolutely clear who wants this to escalate. It's not Israel. It's not even the Palestinian people. It's Iran and Hamas who want this to escalate. And it's up to the free countries, the countries like ours and our partners in the region, to make sure that that escalation does not happen. Because if there's one piece of advice you should always follow is don't do what Iran wants you to do. To that point about funding Hamas and Iran, um, Wally Adeyama, the Deputy Treasury Secretary, just confirmed to me he is going to Europe later this week to specifically meet with European leaders about what can be done to go after Hamas's financial network with such backing from Iran. What more do you think can be done on that front? Well, this is a conversation that we have with partners in many different ways and clearly closing down finance networks that fund terror groups like Hamas is incredibly important. And it's something we devote an awful lot of time to. But of course, terror groups also devote time to and try to use new currencies and new systems to get around it. And that's why we've constantly got to update our systems, constantly got to update our laws to make sure that we're working alongside partners like the United States, but also the European Union and many partners in the region to close down those routes, those funding channels that don't just fund terror in Israel, but also fund, let's not beat any, let's not, you know, skip over it, the murder and brutalization of the Palestinian people. Hamas is an organization that has literally dug up water pipes to turn them into rockets. It has stolen aid off the Palestinian people while its leadership lives in luxury abroad. This is a brutal regime that has done more to destroy the lives of Palestinians than anything else. British uh, Security Minister Tom Tugendhat, thank you. We know you have a big day ahead at the UN. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Well, an off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot is accused of trying to cut engine power on a flight. We're going to tell you how and the crew's quick response that saved everyone on board. Take a look at these pictures, a deadly crash in Louisiana involving more than 150 vehicles, how super fog managed to cause so much devastation. An Alaska Airlines pilot is being charged with 83 counts of attempted murder for trying to shut down a plane's engines mid-flight. Joseph Emerson was off-duty Sunday and sitting in the jump seat when authorities say he tried to cut fuel to the engines by pulling the fire extinguisher handles. That's when the crew jumped into action, quickly resetting the handles to keep the engines from failing completely and subduing Emerson. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now. Pete, this is a horrifying incident. What are authorities saying right now? Well, we're learning a lot more about the nature of this incident, Phil. Actually, a passenger says a flight attendant announced to the plane that Emerson appeared to have a breakdown of some sort. And that same passenger actually saw Emerson and said he looked well-kept, but, quote, dead in the eyes. Now, Emerson was an Alaska Airlines pilot flying on this Alaska Airlines regional flight in what's known as the jump seat. That's a small third seat in the cockpit. It's behind the captain and the first officer. It is used all the time by airline employees, often to commute between their home cities and bigger airline hubs. Now, this flight left Painfield near Seattle in Everett on Sunday afternoon. It was bound for San Francisco. And at 31,000 feet, the pilots radioed air traffic controllers in Seattle to declare an emergency. And I want you to listen now to what they said after the captain and first officer subdued Emerson. We've got the uh, guy that tried to shut the engines down uh, out of the cockpit. 
Um, and he uh, doesn't sound like he's causing any issue in the back right now. I think he's the dude. Other than that, uh, yeah, we want law enforcement as soon as we get on the ground and park. This flight diverted to Portland, Oregon, where police met the plane and arrested Emerson. He's now charged with 83 counts of attempted murder, one count for each person on the plane, 83 counts of reckless endangerment, one count of endangering an aircraft. Now, sources are stressing to us overnight that this had no link to terrorism. The FAA is telling airlines it's not in any way connected to world events. And the FBI says there's no continuing threat. But one more interesting detail here, Phil. Alaska Airlines says Emerson attempted to engage the engine fire suppression system for both of the engines on this Embraer 175. When that system is first engaged, it first cuts fuel off to the respective engine, causing that engine to begin to shut down. Those big red T handles there you see at the top of the screen. Now, Alaska Airlines says the captain and first officer acted really quickly to reset that system, and that kept the engines from failing completely. Phil. Wow. Pete Montine, thank you for the reporting. Pretty scary. CNN This Morning continues now. Two women released after being held hostage by Hamas for more than two weeks. I can't even express how happy I am and relieved to see her. This is a small ray of light in a big story. The story is not over till everybody comes back. Huge amount of hope for the other families. The support is there. Empathy is there. We want action. We believe the best way to do that is to keep the pressure up on Hamas. It is important to keep Raqqa crossing an operation, critical and urgent need. Without electricity, this hospital will just be a mass grave. We desperately need a humanitarian ceasefire. The U.S. has rushed an American three-star general to help the Israelis. The troops are ready. They're ready to go. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is live with us in Tel Aviv, and that's where we're now hearing from one of the hostages released by Hamas yesterday. This morning, the 85-year-old grandmother described her abduction and captivity. Her daughter was by her side translating. Yehaved Lifshitz says, quote, hordes of Hamas fighters stormed to her kibbutz during the massacre and kidnapped her on the back of a motorbike and beat her with sticks once in Gaza. She says she was held underground with five other hostages she says they were treated well by guards, a doctor, and a paramedic who made sure that they had the medicine they needed. She says Hamas had a stockpile of shampoo and other toiletries all ready for them. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. When she first arrived, they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them um, and that uh, they shared, they ate the same food that their, uh, um, the, um, the Hamas was eating. Hamas has now released four hostages as Israeli troops gear up to launch an assault on Gaza by ground, sea and air, according to top officials. The Israeli military says it struck more than 400 targets across Gaza in the past day, killing Hamas commanders and fighters, more than 200 hostages are still believed to be inside Gaza, including 30 children. Let's go straight to Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv. One of the most striking things, Aaron, in listening to this, uh, the entire thing was striking, given the lack of visibility we've had into how hostages are being treated, but was the, the care that they had or the availability of the care. Take a listen. Yeah. We had a closed doctor 
who came to see us every two to three days. The paramedic took it upon himself and took care of medicines. If there were not medicines, they would bring substitute medicine, equivalent medicines. Aaron, when you, when you heard that, were you surprised? You know, Phil, on one hand, of course, right? Because, you know, last night, um, somebody who's spent a, a career speaking to uh, Hamas leaders and, in fact, was texting with one of them on the day of the attack, told me about a video that he'd seen from a Hamas GoPro uh, camera that they had on. Of course, we know they were wearing those, uh, describing the absolutely brutal rape um, of a, a young woman who was uh, dismembered and bloodied, and the actual rape is on camera, as he described it, that he saw. Even saying that, yeah, I have to pause, right? And then you, you talk about what you're hearing here, that the, the care of the hostages, that Hamas wanted it to be this way, that they prepared for it to be this way because they eventually wanted exactly the sound bites that you're getting now, that they were humane and took care of their hostages. Of course, they're still hostages, and you must celebrate the fact that, they, that, that we have four home and that, may, and that hopefully there will be more. Uh, but this is very much a part of what Hamas wants to portray to the world, right? That they're the David against the Goliath and they take care of their hostages and look what we've done. And it's humane. But you have to, in the same breath, remember what it is that they were also doing that day on October 7th. And it is that juxtaposition, which, yes, on the one hand, is so surprising and shocking and impossible to hold those two things as true in your head, even though they are true. But on the other hand, Phil, yes. This is, in a sense, what could be expected, uh, because this is the, the, the public relations perspective that they would want to impose upon a broader world to gain sympathies. That is such a crucial point. One cannot really be said, Aaron, without the other truth of the massacre on October 7th. Also, the fact that uh, we heard from her daughter, Sharon, after the news conference about the fact that her, her mother's husband, so her father, is still missing. Listen to this. My mom and my dad were separated at the very beginning. And so we do not know from my mom's story what happened to my dad. We do know that he was injured. So, Aaron, that's also the, the brutal reality. They were separated and they have no idea where he is. Right. And this is actually a crucial point, right? You remember she referred to a spider web of tunnels. And yep. we know that that's the truth, that there is a complex network of tunnels, some of which are very deep under the ground and perhaps even in that sense immune to Israeli munitions unless they move to some sort of bunker buster bomb type of situation. But also consistent with what the IDF has said since the beginning, which is that they believe that the hostages were not only being held underground, but in locations underground tunnels that in the past had not been, uh, Hamas had not been known to use, which is a little different than saying Israel doesn't know where they are. Uh, their wording was very careful on that. Uh, but it, it does show, right, they're going to release the wife, but not the husband. This context really matters when you talk about what this is really about, right? And then you want to say humanity and well-treated. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. They shouldn't be separated. And these realities all exist at the same time, Poppy. They do. Absolutely, Aaron. Thank you. We'll get back to you very soon. And joining us now, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former FBI deputy director, Andrew McCabe. Uh, Andrew, thanks for being here. The, to start with, uh, you heard the level of preparation. Uh, I think that there's almost one guard for every hostage. Actually, let's take a listen to it. We were five, and for each of us, there was a guard. They took care of every detail. 
And again, I keep saying so many elements of this were striking, but the preparation in the lead up to the attack, I think, was stunning to everybody. The preparation clearly to take the hostages and be prepared for them was also done. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you, as we've seen with many aspects of this operation, it's incredibly well-organized, well-planned. They took their time putting this entire thing together. The hostage piece is a, is a big part of that strategy. We have to remember, Phil, that the hostages uh, are an asset for Hamas now. They stand between, they are the kind of final barrier between a full-on entry into Hamas, a tactical resolution uh, by the Israelis, and they will continue to use the hostages to buy time. They have many to work with. The reports have been upwards of 200 hostages, um, and they will. We will likely see a continued, very small drip, day in, day out, of a few releases now and then to kind of maintain this anticipation that a diplomatic resolution to getting them all returned is right on the brink. And therefore, you know, maybe the Israelis should hold off uh, a major uh, military operation. You know what was also striking is that in this press conference, and let's remember, I mean, she just got out of the ambulance. She had just been released from yeah. one's worst nightmare. She also took a moment to speak about uh, her criticism of the IDF and lack of preparedness despite some warning signs for this. Let's listen to what she said. The lack of awareness by Shin Bet and IDF hurt just a lot. They warned us three weeks beforehand. They burned fields, they sent fire balloons, and the IDF did not treat it seriously. We also know uh, from some CNN investigative reporting that dug up social media posts that showed literally models of the kibbutzim that they had made and practiced attacks on that was online before this attack happened. It's extraordinary. And I think the levels of, well, let's just say the questions about the Israeli defenses and particularly their intelligence collection in the lead up to this uh, mass, <clears throat> massive attack, those questions are important. And the further we go, I think the more people are going to be looking uh, very critically at, uh, at their preparation or the lack thereof. The strategic intent of releasing two hostages on Friday, two hostages again yesterday, as the U.S. clearly has been trying to ask Israeli forces, until you exa know exactly what you're doing, we want to try and get more people out. Right. Um, how, how does that end? It just feels like that would be stretched as long as possible, and I don't think the Israelis have the patience for that at this point. It's almost impossible to imagine that they, they'll play it uh, that long, right? You have to remember that every hostage recovery operation begins with intelligence. You need exquisite intelligence on the location, the conditions, the numbers, the numbers of guards, the infrastructure around containing them. Um, from all publicly available reporting, we're far from that level of intelligence. So there really is no legitimate tactical option right now, which is why there's so much emphasis on the diplomatic resolution to getting these folks out. And if we're getting some of them out, that kind of continues to hold the carrot on the end of the stick to say, let's hold off until we can save as many lives as possible. But the criticism of that is that every day you give Hamas that's right. Right, you to deny, gain more strength. That's right. You deny the Israelis the, the, uh, you know, the response that their society right. so desperately craves that's right, right now. That's right. Thank you, Amy. Sure. New this morning after two more hostages were released from Hamas captivity, one man was abducted alongside the two U.S. citizens who were also released on Friday. 
We'll speak to his family next. And moments ago, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the war against Hamas could, quote, be a long war. What we're learning about the timing of a potential ground invasion. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I hope we can share in this happiness and that when we can all join it together. This is not over, you know, my mom is one ray of light and my son is going berserk and everybody are happy for us. But I'm waiting to also be happy for them. That was the daughter of released hostage Johavid Lifshitz relaying her message to the rest of the families who are still waiting to get their loved ones home. Lifshitz is one of two Israeli women released by Hamas yesterday. We heard about her experience in captivity just a short time ago. Her release comes just days after Hamas released American hostages Judith and Natalie Rahnan. But Israeli officials say Hamas is still holding more than 200 people captive. An Israeli husband and a father, you see him right there, Omri Mehran, is believed to be among them. His wife says she watched him being taken away from their kibbutz in handcuffs. And joining us now is Moshe Lavi, Omri's brother-in-law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. The pain is something no one can imagine who has not gone through this. But what can you tell us about any hope you may have now that we've seen four hostages freed? Does it bring you some hope? Uh, it, it does bring some hope. It's a conflicted feeling. I think we're realizing that dual nationals, first of all, would be prioritized uh, by the, all parties involved. And second, um, probably women and children. Um, my sense is that Omri, my brother-in-law, hopefully will be released eventually, but my sense is that it will take a long time. Do you have... Uh, there's been such a dearth of information for anyone, government officials, families, uh, in such an incredibly difficult time. What have you been told uh, about the status of Omri or any of, of what's happening right now? It took um, the government and all the relevant bodies a long time um, to understand who was taken. There's still a lot of people who are missing, actually. They're finding, discovering, sadly, bodies every day and, and discovering new people, apparently, in, in the Gaza Strip. We know that he's there. Um, we, we, he's confirmed hostage there, um, but there's no signal from his phone, which was taken. Um, there's no information about his whereabouts or his physical situation. So we don't know much. We just know that he was taken by Hamas. And we hope that he's, given the circumstances, well, or if he's unwell, hopefully receives some treatment. And um, that, that's all we know right now. We did hear from... Uh from Yehavid Lifshitz, an 85-year-old hostage, released that the medical treatment that they got actually was pretty remarkable for being held as hostages. So I hope that that can give you some some comfort. We're, we're, we were just looking at these pictures of um, Omri and his wife and child, a beautiful family. What, what do you want people to know about him? Yeah, Omri um, is, a, is a gentle, soft-speaking guy. He was a wonderful father. He invested a lot of time in raising his and, and my sister, two daughters, six months old and two years old. Uh, he really wanted to let my sister continue developing her career and, and supported her. 
I was a shiatsu therapist and he studied also health healthcare management, um, was really connected to nature and would go with his daughters all the time um, to the field outside and avid basketball supporter. Uh, we support the same team in Israel. He was a wonderful, he is a wonderful man and I, I can't wait to see him again. And um, all of us in the family hoping that we will see him again. Um, his daughters really need him. Um, the two-year-old already expresses her emotions. She knew, she knows exactly what went. She understood the violence she experienced in front of her eyes and on her with guns pointed at her face, um, with um, a body lying next to her of a teenage girl. And she cries every night for her father, and we cry with her. So it's hard for us to see, because we were so connected and involved in, in raising the family, it's hard for us to see how this was taken from Ronnie and, and Alma, his daughters. The pain is incomprehensible, I think, if you're not going through it. But uh, we're grateful for your time. Uh, we're thinking about you uh, and your family and extremely hopeful uh, for what comes next. Moshe Lavi, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. To Washington, it has now been three weeks since the House had a speaker. We're going to take you live to Capitol Hill with the latest on the chaos in Congress. And dense fog is being blamed for more than 150 crashes and seven deaths on Interstate 55 west of New Orleans. We're going to bring you the details next. Well, top House Republicans are hoping they can finally elect a speaker, maybe even by tonight. They're set to hold a secret ballot election today to pick a nominee from eight candidates. But it's unclear if any of them can get to 217 votes, which they'd ultimately need to actually get the gavel. CNN's Lauren Fox is live for us on Capitol Hill. Lauren, two primary questions. Those lawmakers I've seen that believe they could have a speaker by tonight, have they been living in a cave uh, for the last three weeks? But the second one is, can any of the eight uh, people that are running right now actually get to 217 votes? Yeah, Phil, those really are the two questions. And I'll be frank with you. I think some of the members who are hoping that they can get a candidate and vote on that person by tonight on the House floor, they're desperate, knowing that their constituents are fed up, that there's frustration within the conference, and they want this all to be behind them. We are now at the three-week mark since House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted from the job. That is why there is desperation and optimism that they could pull something together and get a speaker by this evening. Evening. It may be wishful thinking, but it is the thinking that so many of them are holding on to right now. At 9 a.m., they are going to gather behind closed doors for a series of votes until one candidate gets the majority. Once that happens, there is some discussion about trying to make sure that that person can get 217 votes before they head out to the floor to avoid the embarrassment that Jim Jordan had to face going to the floor three times and never clinching the speaker's gavel. So that is under discussion right now. There is some sense that they could move to a floor vote tonight if they feel like that person can get 217 votes. But here's the huge if, Phil. That is assuming that anyone, any of these eight candidates, are going to be able to garner the support that they need. You know, one interesting tidbit from our colleague Manu Raju last night was he asked a series of House Freedom Caucus members if they would support Representative Tom Emmer. He's the Republican whip. He's largely seen as the frontrunner in this race. Both Boebert and Bob Good were noncommittal. They wouldn't 
say if they would vote for Emmer on the floor. There is a sense right now within the Republican conference that there needs to be new leadership, new blood, and just pulling from the ranks of leaders that have already existed in the House Republican conference, that may not be good enough for some conservatives. Again, important to remind everyone, this is a very narrow Republican majority, which means whoever goes to the floor today, dependent on attendance issues, can only lose four votes. Phil? Yep. Uh those guys who think it might happen by tonight, whatever they're having, if you could grab me some of it, I would appreciate it. Lauren Fox, appreciate you as always. Thank you. All right, I want to update you on what happened in Louisiana. Very dense fog there is being blamed for more than 150 crashes. This happened on Interstate 55. It's just west of New Orleans. Seven people were killed. Look at that. State police say more than two dozen people were injured. Wildfire smoke and very damp conditions created what meteorologists call super fog. It made visibility less than 10 feet. Some vehicles, including trucks, caught on fire. First responders were forced to go on foot because the area was just completely gridlocked. All right, there's new reporting out this morning that says Israel may be willing to delay its planned ground invasion of Gaza to negotiate the release of a large number of hostages. A reporter with that news joins us next. Hamas is responsible for civilian casualties, but we will do every effort to avoid them uh, and uh, to fight this war as speedily and as, uh, uh, as rapidly as we can, but it could be a long war. That is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying this could be a long war. The IDF says it has struck more than 400 targets in just the past 24 hours. As you heard the prime minister say what they are bracing for. Here with us now, CNN military analyst, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Wesley Clark. So appreciate your expertise. Good to be um, with you. Especially in a morning like this, there's some really interesting uh, reporting. Our Oren Lieberman brought it to us. We now know that a commander of Marine Forces Special Operations Command uh, Marine Corps Lieutenant General James Glynn is is in Israel, advising Israel on next steps. Can you can you speak to what he would be doing in a moment like this? Well, I think he'll just be consulting. You know, the Israelis have their own plans. They've got a lot of experience, but we do too. We had some major uh, urban operations, like in Mosul in 2014. We worked it really hard, and there are some similarities. There'll be some differences. And I think the exchange of professional opinions in cases like this at a very high level is really important. You bring up Mosul, which is really interesting because that is something that the defense secretary also, uh, Lloyd Austin, also brought up over the weekend, talking about the reminder from Mosul about the difficulty, and that's an understatement, of urban warfare like this. So would he counsel in that respect as well? Right. Well, you can count on urban warfare being difficult in, in every circumstance, and especially here because the population is going to be against the Israelis. So that's one of the major factors. And, of course, urban terrain with all the buildings and so forth and rubble and vehicles, it's very complicated. So you really have to know what you're doing. You have to think it through very carefully before you go in there because it just soaks up forces. You could have 100,000 people in there, and they're distributed block by block, building by building, and then they can't react if something happens. It's much different than fighting in more open terrain. So all those things are going to be discussed, I'm sure. To that point, and to drill in a little bit further, and, and talking to some folks at the Pentagon a week ago, I said, is, is Fallujah a good analog? I said, no, way worse. Mosul, closer. However, ISIS had a year. They've had 15 years. Um, is this possible, the idea of going in and uprooting Hamas, given the scale of the preparations, the tunnels, how they operate, the civilians? Well, you don't want to say it's not possible. 
But what you do want to do is look at the objectives. So when you go in there on a professional level, I'm sure uh, General is going to say, now, what are the objectives? What, what are you going for? You're going to say you're going for the enemy. But how are you going to get to the enemy? So you're going to take key terrain. What's the key terrain? Is it the desalination plant? Is it the power plant? Uh, what is it and how do you go from one piece of key terrain to the other? When you go into an urban area, you have to secure, not only you have to advance, but you have to secure your lines of communication and your rear. And you've somehow got to get into this tunnel network. So uh, it, it could be enormously difficult. About that key question that General Petraeus raised as at the launch of the Iraq war, what's the end game? Have you heard any Well, you know, when we went, in, when we went into Kosovo, <clears throat> when I was a NATO commander in 1999, we actually <clears throat> had thought that after the bombing campaign, um, the UN would come in. And we already had a plan for how the NATO forces would sit on the ground and, and occupy. So we knew where we were going. In this case, it's a, it's a little hard to define the end state because... Um, Ehud Brock was on CNN on Sunday. I thought he did an excellent job of saying, of course, it's going to be the Palestinian Authority, but you're not going to get the Palestinian Authority to commit right now. When you look at what's going on on the West Bank, the rising militancy there, the, the, the fact the Israelis are coming in there and striking targets for, the, for any authority to then say, OK, we're going to work with the Israelis and make this all right. It's not going to happen right now. So I think, uh, you know, you can keep that in mind as an end state, uh, but it's what President Biden said. Uh, you can't occupy. You've got to plan on going in, doing what you have to do, and it's got to be turned over to someone. That someone is going to probably be the Palestinian Authority in a reinforced, restructured way with Saudi money, with European Union training and leadership, with the enhanced capabilities. I mean, that's the only good that's going to come out of this. And, and hopefully uh, we can work that way. But the Israelis, I don't think, are going to wait for that to be defined and coalesce before they go in. I just don't think it's possible. How is that a feasible option, though, for the Palestinian Authority? Abbas has significant issues with his own population already because they feel like not only is he not delivered and it's uh, the, the kind of bloat uh, in that, inside that organization has been very apparent for a decade plus. But to put in new leadership or to try and have new leadership financed by other Gulf states and Europeans and the Americans, how is that going to get the people, the Palestinian people, to follow them? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a really tough problem. And um, I think it starts with U.S. leadership, honestly. And I think the president has cashed it the right way with his concern not only for the hostages, but for uh, aid for the Palestinians in Gaza. So um, in order to work this, the United States has to be the adult in the room. We have to be the power that's looking over the whole region, trying to get the right balance between justice, fairness, and getting uh, after Hamas, destroying it, because you can't tolerate an organization like that in the region whose sole purpose has been to destroy another state. So if you get the right context in there, over time, I think it is possible to work and strengthen the Palestinian Authority. But um, as everyone has said, this is a long, long process. General Wesley Clark, thank you. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Good to have you. Aaron. 
All right. Well, Poppy, new video this morning of Israeli airstrikes into Gaza continue as the aerial assault continues. Hundreds more strikes overnight. Uh, IDF says they have carried out across Gaza. And that is crucial in terms of the hostage situation. We've learned new information about Israel's potential plans for a ground offensive and also the situation with the hostages, because according to a new report, Israeli officials say that they are willing to delay going into Gaza for a few days to allow for talks on releasing a large number of hostages being held by Hamas. Let's go straight to Barack Ravid, political and foreign policy reporter for Axios. He's got this new reporting. Now, Barack, clearly they have been delaying this, uh, delaying and delaying and delaying. I mean, it's definitional at this point. Uh, there are now four hostages out. Um, but when you talk about a large hostage release, what is this? Is this the, the 50 we've been hearing about or more? Or what is your understanding from your reporting? Good morning. I think that what the Israelis want to try and achieve, and for that they're willing to wait with the ground uh, invasion for another few days, is to get mostly the women, the children, and the elderly out. That's dozens of people held by Hamas for two weeks now. And Hamas, by uh, releasing uh, last week two hostages and yesterday another two, is trying to, you know, do this slow drip of hostages out of Gaza to try and delay, to try and uh, play for time. The Israelis told Hamas through Qatar and through Egypt that if you want to cut a deal on hostages, we're ready. We're ready to discuss it. But this is, we're talking about a big deal not a slow, the slow drip of, of hostages. Um, at yeah. the moment, there's no such deal, unfortunately, but I think they're ready to discuss it. Right, and, um, and obviously until then you get the drip, which Israel says isn't enough, but in a sense, factually, it is enough because they're getting the drip as they're waiting for the bigger deal. I mean, I understand these are you know, often circular conversations in this moment. But Barack, reading your reporting, there was something you said that I wanted to highlight. You spoke to a senior Israeli official who said, if Israel, if Hamas proposes a big package, of course, we will be ready to do things in return. What are those yes. things, Barack, as you understand it? I think there are several things that Hamas wants. Uh, first and foremost, Hamas wants some sort of a ceasefire. It is under immense pressure. They've been under bombing for two weeks. They're in the tunnels. Believe me, it's not fun over there. Okay. And they want some oxygen. So they'll be able to get their leadership to other hiding places, have some time for to reorganize, to take a breath. And they're willing to do a lot for it. And Israeli telling Hamas, if you want to get even one minute of ceasefire, first you need to get all the women and the children out. So I think that this could be how this deal looks like. Hamas wants other stuff. It wants yeah. fuel. I don't see Israel getting fuel into Gaza at the moment. Um, Barack, obviously, that Israel's been clear with one strategic goal, right? I know the U.S. has been critical that they haven't been clear on many of them. But the, the main one they've been clear, clear is that they're going to decapitate and um, eliminate the leadership of Hamas, right? So if you're Hamas and you can get a ceasefire for six hours or so to regroup, to give over hostages, but eventually the more you give over, the closer you are to your um, elimination and your death, how do yeah. you square that circle? I think that at the moment Hamas needs any uh, oxygen it can get from the current situation that it's in, okay? And those hostages, at least some of them, the women, the children, the elderly, I think that Hamas realized that they're more of a burden 
than an asset. The international criticism Hamas got in those two weeks due to the hostage situation is bigger than it, than it got in all the years that it was holding Israeli soldiers uh, uh, hostage. So I think that the, this terror organization understands that if it gives up some of the hostages, its situation could improve. All right, Barack, thank you very much. Barack Ravid with the new reporting that Israel is willing to continue delaying this, Poppy, uh, for, for more days in, in the hopes of a major hostage exchange. And I mean, obviously, Poppy, they've already delayed it here for weeks. So this is the constant uh, wait and wait and wait, ready to go position that, that we remain in as Israel hopes for a much larger hostage release. I mean, and the point you just made that the reality is they are delaying as more hostages get released. But will those talks happen that Barack is reporting for a delay for a big group of hostages would be really significant. Aaron, thank you very much. We'll get back to you soon. Here in the United States, the Homeland Security Department warning we'll likely see more hate crimes in the United States as the war in the Middle East continues, and we're already seeing it happening. Our humble ask is that people give a damn when we die. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, the Department of Homeland Security says the war in the Middle East may lead to more hate crimes across the United States, from anti-Semitic flyers to vandalism. There's already been an escalation. DHS issued this warning to law enforcement, quote, escalations in the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas almost certainly will increase the threat of terrorism and targeted violence. Our Nick Watt has that reporting from Los Angeles. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Well, Poppy, you mentioned a threat, the threat, the tension rising, transferred here to this country from the Middle East during what's going on. Now, many Jewish Americans I've spoken to say that they're really not feeling the support and sympathy that they hope they would get in the wake of October 7th, the largest loss of Jewish life in a single day since the Holocaust. Instead of sympathy and support, many feel vilified and scared. Americans from many walks of life showing support for the people of Gaza. Meanwhile, it's largely just Jews at the very few demonstrations in support of the Israeli civilians who were tortured and slaughtered October 7th, and for the more than 200 taken hostage and still held by Hamas terrorists inside Gaza. Some Jews who march, for example, for Black Lives Matter or the women of Iran, feel let down. It's really, really, really upsetting to see that people, to see our people, to see people who we stand with, not stand with us. Our humble ask is that people give a damn when we die. That's Rabbi Sharon Brous in a now viral sermon. It feels like a great sense of abandonment. People who we've been in the trenches working with for many years, um, not only don't grieve when Jews are massacred, but actually celebrate. It's, it's, a, it's devastating. She is a regular critic of the Israeli government and a peace advocate. People feel like they're forced to have to choose between this or this, when in fact, what we have to do is find the moral imagination to dream of a different kind of future in which all people can live in justice. In Brookhaven, Georgia, anti-Semitic flyers were passed out overnight Saturday. In San Diego, an Israeli cultural center closed indefinitely after being vandalized twice 
in three days. It seems that a lot of feelings of anti-Semitic hatred have been dormant mostly until now. In Los Angeles, a Jewish school says that after a game, our football team experienced a variety of anti-Semitic language and gestures, including the Nazi salute, mostly from the stands, although a couple of the opposing players were involved as well. Having that history still so alive in our spirit and in recent memory, um, it does alert us to the hints of those kinds of um, major social currents in our own time. In Skokie, Illinois, Sunday, a pro-Palestinian counter-protest sprung up near an Israeli solidarity rally. Someone pulled a gun, fired in the air. The governor is calling for calm in a state that has seen a rise in hate and real hurt for its Jewish and Arab citizens. Now, remember, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was stabbed to death in Illinois, apparently because he's Muslim, apparently an act of hate. Governor Pritzker of Illinois made a plea. He said, stop holding Jewish uh, Muslims and, uh, sorry, American Jews and Muslims responsible for the actions of governments thousands of miles away. Back to you. Wow, that's such important reporting, Nick. Thank you very much for bringing it to us this morning. And in New York City last week, a swastika was found scrawled on the outside of 2nd Avenue Deli, one of the city's iconic Jewish eateries. Joining us now is New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Her state is home to the largest population of Jews outside Israel, and she visited Israel last week. Governor, we, we appreciate your time to start with what we're hearing, the warnings from the Department of Homeland Security about uptick and uptick in potential hate crimes. Do you have any uh, credible threats? Or are you aware of any credible threats against uh, Jewish or Muslim institutions at this point? No, thank you. We're constantly monitoring threats on social media and other sources. Uh, I, after the Buffalo massacre, which was done by a white supremacist, literally doubled the size of our state police force that's responsible for hate crimes. I just launched a hotline for people to be able to call if they see uh, such signs as you described as inscribing uh, Nazi symbols or even attacks on mosques. I want to make sure people of New York feel that there is an outlet that they can reach out to their law enforcement uh, allies and we can put an end to this. It's abhorrent to me as the leader of the state with, yes, the largest population of Jews outside of Israel. However, I also have to protect every institution, uh, mosques and as well as synagogues and yeshivas. So I, it's really abhorrent to me that what has happened, the unprovoked attack by Hamas on innocent civilians in Israel has turned into people allowing this hate to fester and rise to the surface in a place like New York, which is known for its diversity and its tolerance and its acceptance of others. So no known credible threats, but we are very vigilant as a place that has had experienced terrorist threats, but also these, this hate speech is very hurtful and we want to put an end to it. I mentioned that you just traveled to Israel. Um, Israel's told the U.S. that there are more American hostages that are alive. I believe 10 Americans are currently unaccounted for. One of those uh, Americans is from Long Island. I believe you brought a picture of that individual and handed it to the Israeli president. What did he say? Well, he understood that I was there on behalf of Americans overall in terms of wanting all of them freed. But I had just been hugging the aunt and uncle and the cousin of Omer Nutra and said I would do anything I could to help them. I met his parents at a rally 
just a day after the horrific attack on civilians occurred and he was taken hostage. So I said, this is my responsibility as governor and representative of these individuals. I put the picture in his hands. I said, let's work together to bring all the hostages home. And he agreed. Israel wants the hostages home as well. But I want to make sure that we never forget the atrocities that were committed on innocent civilians. Yes, they took our hostages. We want them home first. But let's not become desensitized to the horrors that I saw firsthand when I walked through a kibbutz into homes that were been obliterated, blood on the walls and on mattresses and a safe room where two young women were butchered and set on fire. I mean, the, we must not be desensitized to this, what happened there. And there should be a global condemnation of what Hamas did. No, no tolerance, no acceptance, and understanding that Israel has a right to protect itself, and we must stop terrorism here before it spreads to places like New York again, Hezbollah, Hamas. These are threats to our way of life. You visited the Western Wall. Uh, can I ask, what was in the note uh, that you placed inside the limestone? I prayed for peace, but also justice. Prayed for the innocent Israelis who were slaughtered on that day and taken captive, but also all innocent civilians who are in harm's way as a result of this attack. I also uh, took the opportunity to pray for my father, who I had learned flying over from Israel had passed uh, very unexpectedly. So uh, it had a dual purpose for me. And my condolences uh, for the loss of your father. I, I read somewhere about the, the last thing, the last message that he sent to you. Um, what was it? I was in the uh, JFK waiting area planning to board. I wasn't sure I should tell him his daughter was going to Israel, literally into a war zone. But I decided to tell him, and he left a voicemail that says, I'm proud of you, Dolly. My advice, keep your goddamn head down. So that's how my gruff Irish father spoke. Uh, he was proud of me, but he also, as a dad, was concerned about my safety. But he knew I would go, and even when I found out the news... I knew I needed to continue in that journey because I, as much as I could use some comfort, I needed to give more comfort to others. And I received that from the very warm, generous people who I met on my journey to Israel. It was life-changing for me, and I need to come back and be able to talk about what I saw, what I experienced, the people who are in such deep pain. We cannot forget them. We cannot forget the people who are so innocent living on a peaceful kibbutz Right. who are making friends with Gazans and, make, and trying to make sure that they had a peaceful life as well. They're the ones whose blood is on the floor and on the walls. And let's never forget that. Uh, last thing before I let you go, what tangibly can you do now that you've come back? Obviously, there's spreading the message. There's talking about what you saw from a, a tangible perspective. What can you do? Well, you heard in your earlier segment that people are just feeling they've been forgotten, that people... Of, of Israel have been ignored now because the, the conversation has shifted across the board. I don't want any innocent civilians killed. None of us do. But we have to reaffirm Israel's right to protect itself, to obliterate the terrorist organization known as Hamas, and ultimately free the Palestinian people who are being oppressed themselves under that regime. All right, Governor Kathy Holko, we appreciate your time uh, and your dad's advice, which is as good as it can possibly be. Thank you. Thank you. Well, an American who has been wrongfully detained in Russia for five years is pressing the Secretary of State not 
to allow the U.S. to leave him behind again. Hear what Paul Whelan told Secretary Blinken in a story you'll see only right here on CNN. This morning in a CNN exclusive, former Marine Paul Whelan imprisoned in Russia for nearly five years revealed what he told Secretary of State Antony Blinken during a phone call after he was left out of two prisoner swaps last year, where other wrongfully detained Americans, Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner, were released. CNN's Jennifer Hansler joins us now from Washington for, with this exclusive. Jennifer, there were very strong words from Paul Whelan to the Secretary of State. What did he say? Well, that's right, Phil. Uh, Paul Whelan told me he wanted to be able to share his true feelings with the Secretary of State and hear what is being done to try to bring him home after nearly five years in Russian detention. Now, he was able to express his frustration to the Secretary of State in that call. It was the second time they had been able to speak by phone. The first time was back in December of last year. But in this August call, he really did not mince words, is what he told me. Take a listen to how he described his situation to Tony Blinken. I told him point blank that um, leaving me here um, the first time uh, painted a target on my back and leaving me here the second time um, basically signed a death warrant. Now, Whelan said that part of this is because of his age and the physical work that he is having to do in that remote prison camp in Mordovia. He said conditions have gotten worse over the three years he has spent in that camp. He said they get watered down food. The heat has not been turned on yet this year. So he really pressed the Secretary of State to ensure that he is not left behind in that camp again. I should note, Phil, that U.S. officials have said that the, the Russians would not include him in those prisoner swaps. Where do, if we know, and by the way, you're reporting on this, you've constantly been the one able to talk to him and bring his message. The only way people can hear from him, by the way, Jennifer, but where do negotiations stand? Do we know? Do we have any lens into that? Well, right now, there's really no apparent movement on those negotiations. Uh, we know that the U.S. has put forward to the Russians a serious proposal, as they call it. The Russians have not engaged substantively on that proposal. And that proposal was put forward initially before the arrest of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter. So that has forced the U.S. to try to come up with other solutions to bring back both of these men. And I will say, you know, despite the tough words that he gave to Secretary Blinken, Whelan also expressed confidence that there is work being done on his behalf. Take a listen to what he told me. I think everyone's trying to do the right thing. And I know that this will come to an end at some point. How long it will take, I don't know. But I'm being promised that I won't be left behind here. Well, Whelan also said that he believes Blinken is someone who truly cares about the situation. Poppy, Phil? It's a remarkable conversation that you had. You should read the story on CNN.com. Uh, Jennifer Hansler, great reporting, as always. Thank you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Morning, everyone. Welcome to CNN This Morning. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live with us in Tel Aviv. And that is where a hostage released by Hamas yesterday is now speaking 
She is telling her story. This morning at the hospital, 85-year-old Yeheved Lifshitz told reporters how she was abducted and held captive underground for weeks. The grandmother says hordes of Hamas fighters stormed her kibbutz during the massacre and took away, took her away on a motor, motorbike and beat her with sticks. She says they took her into Hamas's underground tunnel network and held her with four other hostages. They had guards, a doctor, and a paramedic who took care of them and gave them medicine. She says Hamas had a stockpile of shampoo and other toiletries for hostages to use. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. When she first arrived, they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them. Um, and that uh, they shared, they ate the same food that their, uh, um, the, um, the Hamas was eating. Well, Hamas has now released four hostages as Israeli troops gear up to launch an assault, they say, on Gaza by ground, sea and air. The Israeli military says it struck more than 400 targets across Gaza in the past day killing Hamas commanders and fighters. This, as more than 200 hostages are still believed to be held by Hamas inside Gaza, and we've learned that includes 30 children. Let's go to Erin Burnett. She joins us live again this hour in yes. Tel Aviv. Erin, uh, hearing from her all of those details, including, by the way, some criticism of, of the IDF and lack of preparedness, was remarkable yes. this morning. It was remarkable, and she did have criticism for the IDF, and you know how they, right, they obviously weren't there. Um, you know, also, Poppy, some things stand out in their, the mundane necessity, right? You're talking about tunnels. We know these tunnels have ventilation. We know that they've been known to have air conditioning. They've got, this has all been reporting that we've heard from the Israelis over the years, but the fact that she's saying she was held underground for more than two weeks, um, that there was shampoo, there was antibiotics, there was a guard per hostage in the experience she had, uh, that there were medics and paramedics, and obviously she is elderly, the other woman who was released also elderly and had medical needs, and that they had the medicine needed, and if not, something uh, similar to replace it. Um, it is pretty stunning, because you've got to contrast that with what's happening above the ground, right? Where there isn't water, never mind shampoo, Okay, they don't have water. They're using toilet water. There is no morphine for any kind of uh, amputations. Antibiotics, no, right? But Hamas had stockpiled all of that and has all of that underground. And that's what we're learning from her. Yeah, and to that point, Aaron, and I want to play the sound from her on this because it gets at just how prepared they were for taking hostages, including at the scale that they took them. Take a listen. They looked very well prepared. They prepared it for a long period of time. All of the needs for female, for, that women needs, shampoo, conditioner. Did that surprise you? I know everyone was surprised by the scale of the actual terror attack itself, but the preparations for hostage taking also seemed to be a significant piece of the plan. Yes, when they say prepared for things, women's needs, okay? They were therefore prepared. I mean, let's just, just go ahead. I think we're being honest about it. That means they had tampons and things, okay? That is a level of preparation for what they were going to do, 
right? And it shows that they were going to take people of all different ages, right? It shows a preparation for that. And, you know, we saw that in the plans that we've seen taken from the bodies of Hamas uh, militants who were killed in the terrorist attack, you know, that it lays out what they were going to do in every single kibbutz. And it also laid out very explicitly in the ones that I've had a chance to read what they were going to do with hostages, take as many as possible. Here's the communal uh, eating area in this kibbutz. This is where they go. This is how you get there. Here's the map. It's circled. Take the hostages there. So that was very much a part of the printed plan. And now you see the other end of it, the level of preparation that went into it. But again, in the mundane reality of having feminine hygiene products, shampoo and antibiotics, uh, it is those very specifics, I think, that are most striking. For sure. And Aaron, also, I wonder if we'll learn from her or some of the other hostages released how much they had, meaning how, which would indicate how long they had been planning or have been mm. planning to hold the hostages. So we'll see. I also thought this was striking that her daughter, Sharon, spoke at, a new, at that news conference as well. And this is what she said about her dad, who, of course, is Yehaved's husband. Listen. My mom and my dad were separated at the very beginning. And so we do not know from my mom's story what happened to my dad. We do know that he was injured. Injured and very well, very likely could still be being held. Yeah, absolutely. They were held in separate places. So as much as Hamas is, again, giving this image of, of, of humane treatment to hostages, you must remember again that they were hostages. Remember what happened to the people who didn't get to become hostages, the horrible and brutal and inhuman method of their brutal massacre and slaughter. But then when they did take people hostages, they would separate. So a husband and wife not being together, uh, and she doesn't know where he is. And that, of course, is the obvious, raises the obvious point that we don't know uh, where they're being held and are there any being held in larger groups. We know Hamas has said that some of the hostages have been killed in Israeli airstrikes. We don't know if they've been killed. We don't know if they were killed by Israeli airstrikes or anything else. But uh, all we know at this point is what Hamas has said. They've indicated 22 have been killed in strikes. We just don't know if it's true. Well, the Israeli forces preparing for the Gaza ground invasion are getting counsel from an American military leader now here on the ground in Israel. Marine Corps Lieutenant General James Glynn was head of the Marine Forces Special Operations uh, Command. And it is unclear, though, while, of course, he has the experience and the resume for such a situation, it is unclear what his specific role is here. But an official does say General Glenn, of course, has decades of experience and can ask what they say are the hard questions, as the United States does not have a clear sense of Israel's intentions in Gaza, right? They've said they're going to get rid of Hamas in all respects. But uh, beyond that, what that actually means, they have not provided any specifics. CNN's Nick Robertson is in Starot, Israel, where he has been since the beginning of this war. And Nick, as as we have been in the midst of what is now 17 days into a war, what are you seeing in terms of military movement this morning in the context of what? More than 300 strikes that Israel is saying they conducted in the past 24 hours in Gaza. Yeah, and, and just to go back to what you were saying there about the former Marine general, I, I think the other piece of context here, of course, is the fact that we know that there's a Marine expeditionary unit at 2000 who've been on uh, readiness and standby to come in and give uh, give logistics support and other unspecified support uh, to uh, to the Israeli military at a time when there are American hostages on the, being held by Hamas inside Gaza. Um, so I, I, it seems 
teams, you, you know, when you pick and choose which general to come and give what sort of advice, you're also picking one who will be very familiar with the sort of expertise, readiness, uh, and what these Marines who are sitting just offshore um, have at their disposal. It, it speaks to me as, uh, as, as coordination as well. Of course, that's not what we're being told. But when it comes to the, the, the readiness, we heard from the Prime Minister today, Prime Minister Netanyahu, when he was speaking with the French President Emmanuel Macron, who's given his support to um, Israel's right to strike back at Hamas. Uh, the Prime Minister said it could be a long war. I I'm struck by the fact that he said it could be, because until now he's been very, very clear, saying we'll go, we'll go after them and we'll, we'll get the job done, we'll get completely get rid of Hamas. But I think this is also indicative of the fact that there is no uh, stepping back from the possibility of a ground incursion. And then we're not seeing anything on the ground at the moment would in, that would indicate that. We're still hearing uh, heavy detonations coming from within Gaza. I've heard military helicopters uh, in the area this morning. So um, what we heard from the Israeli uh, defense chief yesterday, a general, general staff, uh, head of general staff, saying that they're ready, that the troops are ready, that they're getting additional training. But I think the posture is set for when the command comes that the, the, the troops are ready for that incursion. Very clear that they're being paused, very clear that that has to do with humanitarian aid, has to do with hostages, uh, quite the connections we don't see. But that force is there, it's ready to go. I don't see anyone pulling it back at the moment, Aaron. All right, Nick Robertson, thank you very much along the Gaza border in Sterod. Appreciate that. And I want to go now to the IDF spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. Colonel, I appreciate your time. I'm glad to speak with you this morning. I want to give you a first a chance to respond to what we were saying was one of the things that stood out as this hostage has spoken out, that Hamas was prepared for this. Um, feminine hygiene products, shampoo, antibiotics, um, paramedics, medical care, eating the same food as the hostages ate. How do you respond to that? Well, clearly, Aaron, they were prepared for the attack. We see just the magnitude of their attack. So they had a very clear plan of action. So it shouldn't be to, any surprise to us that this is the, what they had underground in, as they abducted uh, over 200 people into, uh, into Gaza. Uh, I remind you, they, they did a coordinated attack with more than 20 points of breach, overground, uh, uh, at ground, and at sea. Um, they penetrated some 30 different communities across the uh, across the southern, across southern Israel and butchered and murdered and raped over 1,400 people. So why should we be surprised if that if that was the level of preparation? They're also taking care of the preparations required for the people that they intended to abduct. Um, and as you rightly pointed out, the the hygiene items identify the fact that they were actually intending to abduct women intending uh, to abduct the elderly. And they didn't care. They just wanted to abduct Israelis for Israelis. So civilians is what they are holding. They need to be released. They need to be released now. And this is, this is the situation we are in today. Colonel, I want to give you a chance to respond now to the uh, reporting. Brock Ravid from Axios was just on reporting that Israel is willing to delay its ground invasion for a few more days. Obviously, it's already been uh, delayed. I mean, you've been ready to go for... for 
for 16 days, 15 days, whatever the technical day point may be here that you want to say since you were ready. Uh, but that willing to delay for a large hostage release um, and uh, a senior Israeli official telling him, if Hamas proposes a big package, of course, we will be ready to do things in return. Can you comment on that? Aaron, you know, I can't comment specifically, but I would say there are two conditions for any ground mobilization of the idea. First of all, of course, the government decision to mobilize. There needs to be a green light from the government that tells us to go in. Uh, you know, war is the political intercourse by other means, and that is why there is need for a political uh, dialogue or a diplomatic dialogue to be ongoing. Uh, the second yes. component is operational, op the optimal operational requirements of, an, of a military ground operation. Uh, that every, with every day that goes by, we are a more professional force, a more prepared, a better prepared, a better equipped force. So we're not in a rush. The, as you rightly pointed out, the government hasn't limited our time, being, time frame for this operation. On the contrary, they've said it'll take a long time because we understand that fighting this type of war is a very challenging uh, process. So we're not in a rush. We are determined to destroy Hamas, make sure it can never, uh, never, ever attack our people, abduct our people, butcher our people, murder our people, and, and where we are heading at this time. So until those two conditions are made clear, that is basically where we will be standing. We, we need to be prepared. We, we need the government to make give us that green light. I, I want to play something else that Yoki Lifshitz, one of the hostages, said uh, when she was speaking this morning, uh, specifically about Israeli intelligence and, and what happened to her that morning. Here she is. The lack of awareness by Shin Bet and IDF hurt just a lot. They warned us three weeks beforehand. They burned fields, they sent fire balloons and the IDF did not treat it seriously. So, Colonel, can you respond to that? She's saying specifically, and it, it appears to be from conversations that she would have had with her captors, that Israeli defense forces and the Israeli intelligence apparatus, both domestic and, and foreign-focused, had a three-week warning. She goes into the detail on that and say that they failed. What do you say to that? Aaron, clearly there is a failure on several levels of the IDF's readiness and preparedness, the intelligence community. There will be a time to investigate and get to the bottom of exactly what was missed. If it was indeed these fires that were launched, these incendiary uh, devices that were launched against Israel, and was this the warning sign that should, that should have prepared us for this attack? But indeed, there, are, there is the intelligence failure, the, the barrier failure, the forces on the ground failure. All of these will be investigated at a time. We're currently focused on making sure it doesn't happen yes. again. Colonel, Colonel, one more final question. You know, Hamas has said that 22 of the hostages have been killed in Israeli airstrikes. We don't know whether they were killed in Israeli airstrikes or any other way, and we don't know if those numbers are... We don't know anything. Do you know? Do you think that 22 hostages have been killed? Here's what I know. We are conducting small-scale uh, raids around the border, and we're still collecting bodies of Israelis that they had killed on the way as they were abducting them into Gaza. Um, we know that we need to be very, very cautious in 
taking anything that Hamas has to say because their whole operation is a, an operation of manipulation and death. So I, I would say let's not listen to what Hamas is saying. They need to release the hostages. They need to release them now. They need to let uh, Yocheved's husband free. Uh, we heard that she, uh, from her daughter that, that about the concern for her father. And, and, they, need, and they need to re release the yes. other 200 or so hostages uh, uh, go. They need to let them go now. That is what we're demanding. That is what we expect. And that is the situation. Colonel Lerner, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Poppy. Aaron, thank you. A lot of important information from him, and we'll get back to you very soon. We're also, of course, focusing on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza that is getting worse, not just by the day, but by the hour. Food, fuel, water running out. As these airstrikes continue, Clarissa Ward is with us straight ahead. In Gaza, a limited number of trucks have crossed the Rafah border carrying supplies of water, food and medicine. Aid agencies are calling for a ceasefire as doctors warn that without a lot more fuel, the wounded and vulnerable babies will die. Hamas says there is a power outage at one of the hospitals in Gaza due to that fuel shortage. At Shifa Hospital, one doctor warns it will soon become a mass grave if that fuel runs out. If it runs out of electricity, we have 150 patients who are ventilated because of the critical nature of their rooms. Uh, uh, we cannot run the operating rooms. We cannot run the anesthetic machines. Uh, effectively, the hospital, which now has around 1,700 wounded patients, uh, three times its capacity, will cease to exist as a hospital. Clarissa Ward joins us live from Cairo, Egypt this morning. Clarissa, despite those realities that not only he, but doctors, heads of aid organizations have been laying out, uh, Mark Regev, so close advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu, made it clear last night on CNN to Caitlin, no, we are not going to allow fuel in because the Israeli argument is Hamas takes it and uses it for terror. Right. And so you have this intractable issue, Poppy, but the humanitarian situation growing more dire by the second. Uh, you talk to those doctors. It's not even just about incubators or ventilators. It's about desalination plants. Don't forget the water. Uh, doctors tell us people are drinking brackish water, but they're seeing a huge spike in preeclampsia in pregnant women because of the lack of uh, pure water. They need those generators to power uh, those desalination plant efforts. And so the knock-on effect of this lack of fuel is catastrophic. But despite the efforts of humanitarian organizations, regional governments, you know, Western diplomats, and everyone coming to the table, the Israelis said, as you just articulated, as they told Caitlin Collins, that they believe that it can be used for military purposes. It can be stolen by Hamas. So unclear how this issue will get resolved. But in the meantime, it is having dire consequences. We interviewed a doctor yesterday who said two days left. So potentially you're talking about tomorrow, uh, as early as tomorrow, totally running out of fuel. They have already, uh, according to health officials inside Gaza, turned off lights, for example, turned off air conditioning. They have tried to limit their consumption to the maximum uh, of their ability. But the reality is, without fuel, you are going to see 
a huge amount of deaths, potentially, and still no sense that there's progress being made on finding some kind of a mechanism to appropriately deal with this issue, Poppy. Also, the calculations that you and your team did about how much aid is actually getting into Gaza, other aid, is stunning. It's about 1% of what normally would have gone into Gaza in the last couple of weeks. Right. So literally before the war, you're talking 455 trucks a day of aid going in to Gaza. That's according to the UN. So over a 16, 17 day period, normally you would have had more than 7,000 trucks of aid going into Gaza. In the last 17 days, and it's really just been the last three days, mm -hmm. you haven't even had 60 trucks of aid going in. And don't forget, Poppy, all of this is happening against the backdrop of some of the most relentless and punishing bombardment. Israel saying in the last 24 hours, they hit 400 targets. Mm -hmm. That is the highest number we have seen so far. Uh, the, the Gazan Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, saying that 700 people were killed in 24 hours. So you understand that even in a best case scenario, these hospitals are completely overwhelmed, completely overrun. We talked to one doctor who said, in previous escalations, we might see a mass casualty event once or twice a day. Now we're seeing one every single hour. And so that issue of getting in food, of getting in fresh water, crucially, of getting in medical supplies, and of getting in fuel becomes that much more urgent. Poppy. And just quickly, before you go, how striking to you to hear what the released hostage said this morning, Clarissa, about all of the medical supplies that Hamas has taken for those hostages. It's just such a stark contrast to what the hospitals in Gaza are dealing with. It's a stark contrast, and honestly, it's chilling because it speaks to the level of preparation that was in place. The fact that when she was led into these tunnels, there were doctors waiting to treat her. Hamas understands that these hostages are very valuable, both on a propaganda level in terms of trying to show the outside world that they're treating them with decency and respect, which, of course, by all accounts, they are certainly not but also in terms of leverage. They understand they need to try to keep as many of these hostages alive as possible. And that is not true, it does not appear, for Palestinian civilians. Yeah, Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for the reporting live from Cairo, Egypt. Phil. Well, just a few hours, Michael Cohen is expected to be called to testify in the New York civil fraud trial against his old boss, Donald Trump. And it has been 21 days. Can you believe it? Since the House has had a speaker, are we anywhere? near resolution. That's next. Well, just a few hours in the New York civil fraud trial against Donald Trump, his former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, is expected to be called to testify. This will be the first time in five years that Cohen and Trump are in the same room together. New York Attorney General Letitia James's office has said that it initially opened its investigation after Cohen's testimony to Congress, alleging that Trump inflated the value of his properties. Now, this all comes as Trump was fined $5,000 last week for violating the judge's gag order. Let's go now to CNN's Brent Gengrass, who's live outside the New York courthouse. Um, first time in five years in the same room. They used to be incredibly close. What do we expect today? 
Yeah, I mean, Phil, this is going to be a pivotal moment in the attorney general's case as she continues to work to essentially put the Trumps out of business uh, in the state of New York. And as you said, listen, in recent years, we have seen a very public feud between Michael Cohen and Donald Trump, whether it be on social media, in interviews. But this is going to be the first time that they are in the same room together. And much of Cohen's testimony is going to focus on when he was in the room with his boss at the time, talking about financial statements talking about Donald Trump's uh, net worth and the discussions they had, according to the attorney general, about how the Trumps inflated their net worth to get a uh, business loan. So it's going to be interesting testimony, certainly something that everyone will be very clued in on, essentially, uh, for Donald Trump, especially rather, uh, because he has been very, you know, into the testimony that he's listening to. But this is certainly one of a different level. Uh, we are also expecting to hear from one other witness before uh, Michael Cohen takes the stand today. But we're waiting to hear what he has to say before he leaves his New York apartment. I'm sure we'll hear from the former president because he always talks before he heads into that New York courtroom. So we'll hear what they have to say about each other. But it'll be a dramatic day here, definitely at the New York courthouse, uh, when Cohen does eventually take the stand later this morning. It's like the most New York day in a New York courthouse that I can imagine. <laughs> Brent Gingras, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Joining us now, CNN political commentator, former White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and writer of the Very Serious Newsletter and host of the Very Serious Podcast, Josh Barrow. You have some thoughts on well, Cohen and Trump. The problem with Michael Cohen as a witness is that he's a convicted felon, convicted of crimes, including perjury. And so what I would expect the attorney general will be doing with his testimony is bringing him on to talk about things that they can also then provide documentary evidence to back up, whether that's mm. emails or text messages or that sort of thing. He was in these rooms, and it makes sense that you would want him there to talk about what was said in the rooms. But there's, I, I, there's going to have to be a trust but verify thing about it because the Trump team not unreasonably will say Cohen is a convicted liar and you can't just take his word all by itself. Well, and just how crazy the backdrop that this is what the GOP frontrunner is dealing with today. And this is just a civil fraud case. There's four others to Department of Justice, the Fulton County investigation. Well, the world feels like it's on fire. We're following what's happening in Israel and Gaza, obviously. And this, you know, Congress doesn't have a Speaker of the House. It's just a remarkable kind of preview of what the election cycle is going to look like with Donald Trump. Like, Can I interrupt you, though? Because I thought Trump put it in really good context. Like, he seemed <laughs> to be grounded on the realities of this moment when he was talking about uh, some of the prosecutions he's facing in New Hampshire. Take a listen. I don't mind being Nelson Mandela because I'm doing it for a reason. Yeah. Right? Well, like, I mean, what, yes, naturally. Honestly, like, come on. The like, parallels. What are, we, what are we doing here? I don't, I don't know that you, anybody can have a great but answer. But that is the whole pitch. I mean, Nelson Mandela is a gratuitous way to put it, but the only way to run for president... A little gratuitous, yes. While you, are, while you are under multiple criminal indictments, you have to argue that you're being, that you're being politically persecuted. Otherwise, why would anyone elect you while you're under multiple indictments. So, I mean, that is, you know, the, I think, I, I, I don't agree with him about it, but I think we need to take seriously that that is the argument here. The argument is all of these prosecutions are being brought against me because they fear me politically and they want to punish me and not because I actually committed a wide variety of crimes. I just feel like comparing yourself to a man who spent 27 years in South African prisons for fighting apartheid is maybe like a little bit further <laughs> than like framing the politics of the moment. Well, but I'm, the... It's that that is, you know, that's his argument to his base. I mean, he is, you know, he is seen as the champion of this movement that is fight, fighting against the deep state and whatnot. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. But I, I think, you know, the I don't know that I don't know that laughing at it is going to get his opponents very far. But in other news, 
Trump does know who could be Speaker of the House. Good point. <laughs> let's, let's tell you. Listen. Uh, Tom Emmer for Speaker. He hasn't historically been your biggest fan, but he is the most likely candidate right now. Well, I think he's my biggest fan now because he called me yesterday <laughs> and he told me I'm your biggest fan. So I don't know about that. Uh, well, we're looking at a lot of people and, you know, I'm sort of trying to stay out of that as much as possible. I said there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. <laughs> if Jesus came down and said, I want to be Speaker, he would do it. Not available. I, I'm not so, even convinced this House conference would elect Trump. Like, we're going to need to see a <laughs> Listen, um, Tom Emmer is very much the favorite, um, but even he's setting expectations low for today's conference vote, saying it may be on the second or third ballot that he ends up getting the support. Um, this is a crisis of Republicans' own making. Um, yes, it started with the Gang of Eight or the, actually, the Gates Eight. But it, it has underscored what we have known for some time, but it hadn't really been tested in the public eye, which this is such a divided conference. You basically need to have no more than four enemies to be able to become the speaker. And I'm not sure that exists for anyone right now. But what's interesting about Emmer is he did vote to certify the election. And as far as Democrats see it, he's probably the least bad option from their perspective. So I do think this probably trends his direction. Where Democrats are on this right now is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. There's been some people who say, why aren't they getting, they shouldn't get involved. I think they've played this extraordinarily well, like mm -hmm. King Jeffries and his team. Um, how do you think this lands for them? Well, I mean, there, there are these news reports this morning about the willing, potential willingness of Democrats to have some of them sit out the speaker vote in order to get Tom Emmer over the top. Yeah. If they could get some sort of private assurances about government funding and funding for mm -hmm. Ukraine and that sort of thing. I think even that getting out into the press. Well, that is, would end Emmer. Right, but that. well, but I mean that's in the press now. It's <laughs> right. the you know it's not it's not in the press under a particular name. Um, but certainly, if you know if there's an impression that Tom Emmer has a deal with Democrats, that will be an enormous problem for him with Republicans. The question is whether Democrats can get comfortable basically on an implicit basis, not with any sort of explicit deal with Tom Emmer, um, but just you know sort of hoping and expecting that he's going to behave in a manner that they think is acceptable on government funding, because I think that's that's the most they're likely to get here. I mean, the, the other alternative for Democrats is this this whole thing can fail. They can yeah. designate one or more additional speaker uh, speaker designees and then fail again to get a majority on the floor. And then ultimately you could empower Patrick McHenry, the acting speaker. And that's something that Democrats might also play ball on in a way that would be, you know, limited in time or limited to topics uh, so they do have that option available to them. Also. And I am skeptical of this reporting that Democrats may, you know, sit out votes to empower Emmer. Um, they don't stand to gain much from it. And I do think actually letting Republicans remain in chaos until the November 17th funding battle is actually the best thing for them electorally. Um, I'm not sure it's the best. Thing. Is it the best thing it's for the country? It's not the best thing for the country, the efforts in Ukraine or Israel. So I think it, that's a, an option that the conference is weighing. I would keep an eye today. McCarthy's backing Emmer. Where, do, where does Jim Jordan go mm -hmm. here? He carries a significant enough block that that can, you know, really put some, some pressure behind somebody else, kind of a conservative alternative. Look, I, when you have a panel that gets into Mandela, Jesus, <laughs> Michael Cohen, Tom Emmer's whip count, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Appreciate you guys. Thank Thank you. You. Thanks, guys. CNN is on the ground in the West Bank, where the war is driving a wedge that is fracturing generations of trust between Jews and Palestinians. That's ahead. Something is being cracked. That something is not the same anymore.
Welcome back. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv. Just in, the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza says that 704 people in Gaza have been killed in the most recent 24-hour period. That is the highest daily number that they have put out since the IDF strikes in Gaza began. We did, by the way, just moments ago here over the past 20 minutes here, what I would describe as the heaviest number of strikes that we felt here in Tel Aviv and Gaza that we felt in, frankly, almost the past two weeks. Uh, airstrikes in Gaza creating new concerns for people living in the West Bank. CNN's Sarah Seidner is live in Jerusalem today as she has spent time there. And Sarah, you got rare access to an Israeli settlement in the West Bank. Yeah, uh, Aaron, there is a definite increase in violence uh, and killings that have happened in the West Bank since October 7th. Those numbers in the dozens of Palestinians who have been killed, but also dozens more injured uh, by the Israeli security apparatus. We took a look at what was going on because settlers as well have been accused of violence against Palestinians and vice versa. We went to one of the settlements and talked to those who were there as well as the Palestinians on the other side. Yeah. Ah. Armed and on high alert, Yossi Dagan oversees 40 Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Since Hamas's terror attack on Israel, he considers them Nazis. We are standing against a Nazi enemy, as cruel as the cavemen from 3,000 years ago that carried out a massacre on our brothers in the south. Jewish settler presence here has always been fraught, deemed illegal by international law. The events of October 7th have put these settlements on a war footing. CNN gained rare access to one of the hundreds of settlements dotted throughout the Palestinian territories. Armed patrols are now everyday occurrences in Kiryat Netafim. Fortified perimeters segregate Jewish communities from Palestinian. Local husbands, fathers and son volunteers keep the unwanted out at all times. Natan Duek has stopped going to work and called his local draft office in the days after the attack. We need to protect ourselves because uh, we're surrounded by people who don't necessarily like us. I didn't feel like I have to go fight, but definitely defend my home. He's had enough. <laughs> and the situation is no child's play. He says their world was turned upside down on October 7th. That day, October the 7th, was Shabbat. At the end of Shabbat, we say a, a, a prayer and, sorry. It's okay. Some of it is, is um, What's the prayer? you know, asking, asking God to, to help us and, and to, to keep our children safe and to keep our soldiers safe. And some of these words, I just couldn't say them because, you know, we weren't safe on October 7th. Palestinians say they weren't safe from some settlers long before October 7th, and it's only gotten more violent since. Hanan Ashrawi is a Palestinian activist and a former Palestinian Liberation Organization official in the West Bank. They tell you they're afraid. Why are you committing a war crime? Why are you living on Palestinian land illegally? Just because Israel tells you you can, this is occupied territory. She says the Palestinian territories are shrinking beyond recognition because of all the illegal settlements. <laughs> and then 
there is the growing settler Palestinian violence. Much of the violence has been caught on camera. Here, Jewish settlers throw rocks and fire guns at Palestinian homes. In another incident, after a confrontation, a Jewish settler shoots an apparently unarmed Palestinian in the stomach. We asked Yossi Dagan about this incident. How do you defend the Palestinians who have been killed by settlers? Am I supposed to explain to CNN why terrorists that tried to kill civilians or soldiers were shot by security forces, the police or the army? With all due respect, I don't really understand the question. But we clarified in English and Hebrew, showing him the video. What you are showing me now is an edited, tendicious video of attempts of terrorists to hurt and kill Jews that are protecting themselves. This happens a lot, and unfortunately, there aren't two equal sides. The video you're seeing is not edited, but Palestinians agree with one thing, he says. The sides are not equal. They are the overwhelming victims in this, they say. They're on the rampage. They gave them weapons and they encouraged them and they gave them support and protection by the Israeli occupation army. Ashrawi is referring to Itamar Ben-Gavir, Israel's hardline national security minister. Days after Hamas's attack, he announced the purchase of 10,000 guns to arm civilian security teams. He himself began passing them out. Gun ownership used to be heavily restricted in Israel, but those laws have changed, and now settlers are getting a huge amount of weapons. Back in settlement, Kiryat Netafim, Liat Hartov, takes us to the home where she raised her five children. She says here they've had a peaceful coexistence with their Palestinian neighbors. I lived here for 24 years. I never feared. And now? Something is cracked. I think every mother in Israel these days feels the same, that something is not the same anymore. And what is not the same is what happened on October 7th. Everyone uh, who we spoke with in the settlements said that their fear is higher than it's ever been. Uh, I should say that historically, the reason why uh, the Jewish population lives in those settlements is because they believe it is a part of their biblical land that they uh, refer to as Judea and Samaria. Of course, the international community and international law says different, that it is Palestinian land uh, that has been illegally taken over. Uh, but also, she's a mother of five who says she also moved there because the land was inexpensive. She could afford a house and a yard uh, for her kids. She has five children. Two of them are in the IDF. Uh, she is extremely worried about them as well. Guys, back to you. All right, Sarah, thank you very much in Jerusalem this morning. And we are getting brand new details uh, right now from a hostage who has been released by Hamas, talking about her time in captivity in great detail. So what does it tell the world about what's happening in Gaza? Christiana Amanpour will join us to discuss. I went through hell. We didn't think nor knew we could get into this stage. They rampaged in our kibbutz. I was kidnapped. They made me lie down on motorbike on my side. That was Yohavid Lifshitz, the 85-year-old Israeli woman who was one of two hostages just released from Hamas custody. She spoke at length about her detainment, the conditions in the tunnels where she was kept in Gaza, and how they were treated. This comes as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza deepens for the 2.2 million people trapped there. 
Food, water, and fuel running out as Israel unleashes unrelenting airstrikes across the region. For the big picture, CNN's chief international anchor, Christiana Mampour, joins us live from London. And Christiana, I want to start with what we heard from uh, the hostages that had been released. Just because it was so striking, we have heard so little about their conditions, where they are, what they've been dealing with. What did you take away from that, from your perspective? Well, it was really moving because, like many of you, I'd spoken to her daughter. She came into the studio here just a few days ago, and she spoke so movingly about her elderly parents, how they were really peaceniks, how her father had, you know, gone to the border and, and, and given rides to Palestinians who were trying to get jobs inside uh, Israel over the, over the past few years. So it was very moving to see that her mother has been released, and there she is, Sharon, sitting with her. The details about the tunnel complex, about the health care, about the food, about where they were. We understand in the south of Gaza, which, as you know, is where the Israelis have told Palestinians to move to from northern Gaza. So interesting that the Hamas um, captors kept at least her and her group of hostages in the south, potentially thinking that that was a more secure part. Um, it sort of dovetails a little bit with what I've been speaking to uh, by phone uh, to some Hamas uh, spokespeople. I asked them from the beginning how they're treating, what they're doing with the hostages, when they would let them go, etc. And from the beginning, they said they were treating them well. And that kind of makes sense because she, uh, she, um, uh, you know, she made that clear that they were treated well. Because as cynical as it sounds, they are also, um, you know, currency. They need to be treated well in order for them to be released and for Hamas if they think they can negotiate to get anybody back. So I found that very interesting. And um, clearly the, the network of tunnels, very interesting. The difference between how she was treated and compared to how roughly she was manhandled when, um, when the you know, terrorist attack took place on their kibbutz. She described how she had been taken and essentially slammed onto the back of a motorbike. She's elderly, she's 85 years old, and, and sort of had to kind of lie down on the side of this motorbike. Um, but yeah, it was a really, you know, the, a first uh, description of, what, of, what, of what's going on inside Gaza, certainly for her group of hostages. What about the fact that there is this new reporting from Axios, we just had the reporter on earlier in the program, that Israel is willing to hold on a ground incursion to hope for a big group of hostages to be released? As we couple that with Netanyahu saying, look, a very long war is ahead, the IDF saying... We're ready to go by air, land, and sea. From all your reporting over so many years in the region, do you think Israel pauses, waits, and hopes for a big group of hostages to come out? You know, I don't think it's about hope. I think there is so much negotiation going on, including with Israeli negotiators and mediators who have their Hamas contacts, as well as Qatar and others who have their Hamas contacts. And remember, though, these are mostly with political Hamas. And no matter what anybody says, there is a growing feeling that there may be a, a big division between political and military Hamas. At least that's what one of the um, Israeli negotiators said. So what we've seen is that over the last 24, 36 hours, the United States, in not so many words, but you had John Kirby on your own program, who basically said, we would like to leave some kind of space as long as we can to allow for negotiations. This in the immediate aftermath of the two Americans being released. And then last night on my program, I had just more details from a very senior uh, Israeli journalist 
journalist who really does have the pulse of the nation and has been traveling around to the devastated uh, areas near Gaza and talking to many, many people. There is a shift in public opinion in Israel, she says, whereby the initial, you know, very strong statements about, quote unquote, crushing Hamas from the government has now the people want to see actually no they want to see more time for their loved ones to be released. They feel that the release of the hostages, at least the civilians, need to be the priority right now. So all that's going on, including people like President Macron and others who are visiting and all expressing solidarity with Israel, but all also expressing concern, not just for the hostages, but also for the humanitarian um, disaster and the catastrophe that's unfolding in Gaza as we speak. Christiane Amanpour, as always, with the big picture, thank you very, very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us. You're looking at live pictures of Capitol Hill at any moment. House Republicans are set for a closed-door meeting. Well, they will try again to determine who will be the Speaker of the House. We'll see you back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.